All right. Well, thank you very much for that uh, uh, welcome. That, uh, that, was, that was awesome. Automotive welcome, I guess you could say. So it's good to be here today, and it's awesome that the sun is peeking through. Uh, we really needed this rain. Amen? Okay, yeah. So it's nice to have that, and, um, but it's also, of course, nice to have the sun come back. If you have your Bibles out, can you please turn to two passages? We'll be looking at Acts chapter 6 this morning, and then also 1 Timothy chapter 3. So if you marked those two passages, you'd be in a good position to follow along in the sermon message this morning. It is really good to be here today, and I enjoyed um, this time uh, this morning talking about deacons and how the model for deacons at the Kaiser Church Christ developed, where I served for 11 years. But as um, Mike indicated, I'm now... Uh, the director of the Northwest School of Discipleship up at Tigard, Oregon, and um, just getting my feet wet in that ministry, and we've really just entered our first year of that, and I I pray that God will um, be blessing it for years to come. Um, One of the program elements is a gap year program for young people 18 to 22 years old, and um, the first thing that we did after the opening weekend was to go on a five-day wilderness trek up in the mountains uh, up in Washington State, uh, just out so- uh, south of Mount Rainier and north of Mount Adams, and beautiful area. And I want to say thank you for loaning me Kirk Gallagher because he came and, and helped out with that hike, kind of on just a couple weeks' notice, and did a great job ministering to the young people. And I think you're blessed to have him and Jonathan and Mackenzie here working with you all. And so that was really great to to connect with Kirk and uh, uh, get to know him a little bit last last week. Or the week before, actually. So um, it's my understanding, and the more I've been here this morning, I have a clearer understanding of of that you are in the process of um, um, ordaining or selecting a couple more deacons to join the deacon group at the Eugene Church. And I want to say that I think that's a really wonderful thing, especially in, in COVID where there's been a lot of contraction in churches. It's good to do some expansion and to say, you know, we're not going to let this hold us back from doing the work of God. And installing new leaders to help out with the, the ministry is a sign that there's health and life going on here. And a reboot and a redevelopment uh, of your deacon group can be a really great source of energy for the congregation. So I'm going to be praying for you as you continue this process of growing in your deacons and uh, asking God that he will bless you. So let's begin with prayer, and then we'll take a look at a couple passages from Scripture that have to do with deacons. Our Father in heaven, we glorify you this morning. You are the great God who made all things. All things hold together in you. There is nothing outside of your power. You are the great almighty God of heaven and earth. And we worship you and thank you that we stand before you today as people who are not under your wrath or your judgment because of the blood of your Son that we just commemorated in the supper that he established for us, that weekly reminder that our sins have been forgiven that you do not look at us as objects of wrath to be punished anymore, but you have redeemed us, you've washed us, you've cleansed us, you've clothed us with the righteousness of your Son, and that when this life is over or when your Son returns, we have the great expectation to be living with you for eternity in your glorious kingdom. And now, Lord, as we travel on this earth, we experience glimpses of that eternal glory that we shall have with you, We glimpse it in the life of the church when we love one another despite our differences, 
when we encourage each other to walk in faithfulness, when we correct and rebuke and strengthen each other through Your Word, and we also just have that family experience that is truly part of the church. So, Father, please bless us as a congregation today to continue to grow in You, to be faithful this week as we go to our jobs and we go to school and we go to whatever we're doing. May we be great ambassadors for Your Son in the world that You are trying to reconcile back to Yourself. So bless us today also as we hear from Your Word, as we study these passages that talk about Your servants in the church called deacons. It's in Jesus' holy name that I pray. Amen. So this morning I'd like to just talk about um, the role of deacons in the local church and specifically what the Bible has to say about that. My Bible class was more of kind of just talking about the model that we stumbled onto, um, a practical model there at Kaiser, all within the biblical framework, but uh, it wasn't necessarily a Bible study per se. But now I'd like for us to look at the main passages that have to do with the work of deacons in the church. And the Bible does have significant things to say about these special servants. But the first thing that we've got to get across, and it's something that often comes up when people are talking about deacons, they say things like, well, isn't everybody in the church supposed to be a a servant? Right? You've heard that. We all know that, right? Everyone is supposed to be a servant. I mean, when Jesus washed the disciples' feet, He said, I'm giving you an example of what you're supposed to be like. You're going to serve other people. And this is part of what it means to be a Christian, is to be a servant. And this word that's used often for, the, for deacons, this word is diakonos in Greek, and when they translated the the New Testament into English. They just decided to leave that one untranslated and just kind of make an English word out of a Greek word. And so that's where we get the word deacon. It's a transliteration. And sometimes in languages we do that kind of thing. We We leave things untranslated. And so this word diakonos in the New Testament is that general servant word. And you see it in the New Testament showing up in various places. For example, a diakonos is someone who serves at table. A household servant could be called a diakonos. It's a general term. And so in that sense, all Christians are called to serve. Waiters are called diakonos. Government officials in Romans 13 are called servants. There are disciples who are called servants in Matthew 23, verse 11. Messengers from one church to another referred to as a diakonos. Missionaries and evangelists in 1 Timothy chapter 4 are described by this technical term diakonos. And even apostles can be called a diakonos. Christ himself in Romans 15 is called a servant. And so this term diakonos has a general meaning in the New Testament of someone who is simply a servant. But in at least one or two places in the New Testament, it's used in a technical sense to mean a designated or a special servant. Not a general servant of the church, but a special designated, a formal designation given to church officers. People who take on a formal position of leadership in a congregation alongside the elders of a church. And so one example comes in in Philippians chapter 1 where Paul addresses this letter to the church in Philippi. But then notice what he says. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints 
in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Very clearly here, he's not using the term deacon here in the general sense of servant, but because he's already referred to all the members of the church earlier, all the saints, he's referring to specific officers in the church in Philippi. And then, of course, our main text that we'll come back later today, or later in the message, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, he describes the diakonos and then gives five, six, seven verses saying this is what this person's supposed to look like. And so it's being used in a technical sense. And you know, we're familiar with this concept, right, of using certain words in a general way, but then in other contexts they take on a specific designation. Is anybody a truck driver out there? Okay, we've got one truck driver down there on the north side of the parking lot, I think. Right, well, hey, I'm a truck driver too. I have a pickup truck and I drove it yesterday. But yet you understand when we say truck driver, we're meaning a, a professional truck driver. Anybody play baseball out there? What? No baseball players in the parking lot today. Anybody a baseball player? Okay, somebody said me. I heard it. All right, in the game of baseball, the, ba the whole game relies on catching and throwing a ball. Right? It's impossible to play the game of baseball without catching the ball with a glove. But yet on the team, there's a certain person that is called the catcher. And everybody knows that's different than the guy out in right field. Everybody catches, but there's one guy that's the catcher because he's doing that back and forth constantly with the pitcher, and we refer to him with a technical term. That is exactly what's happening with the term deacon in the New Testament. This word diakonos in some places is referring generally to a servant, and then in other places, it's taking on a technical meaning. And that's what we're looking at this morning. Those who are serving as deacons in that technical sense. And there are two passages that help us understand the meaning of deacon in the New Testament. And the first is Acts chapter 6. So if you turned earlier there, you're ahead, you're ahead of me. So let me, let me get there. And hopefully the wind doesn't blow my uh, notes across the parking lot for Mike to chase down. But anyway, Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. It's an amazing little section of Scripture that illustrates the life of the early church. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith." This is an, an exciting little passage because several things are on display here from this, this short seven or eight verses here. First of all, there is a specific need that has developed in the earliest church. 
And our word diakonos as a noun does not show up here in this section. They are not called deacons. But the verb form of diakonos, diakonein, does show up. And so they are serving, and that is the point. And that's why most scholars believe, yeah, this is probably the origins of the office of deacon in the early church. And so it's worth our attention as we think about deacons. There is a specific problem. The Hellenistic widows are being overlooked. Now, you may remember if you've, as you studied through the book of Acts, there's, a, there's some several things going on here uh, racially. And in the early church, in that community, there were Jews who had come to Jesus, but they might have been from a, a Greek background, and others who were locals who lived in Palestine and spoke Aramaic. And so what Acts is describing here is that this community, you had the Hellenistic Jews. Those are Jews who speak Greek more fluently than they speak Aramaic. Okay? And then you have the Aramaic Jews, or what's called Hebrew Jews here, who their native language is in Hebrew. And that community is a bit divided here and gets divided because of the daily distribution of food that is taking place. Evidently, that early church would provide meals for the widows of the community, a great concept, right, of helping out those who are most at need. But somehow, some way, those who were the Hellenists, who spoke Greek as their native language, somehow were being overlooked. And I was trying to imagine what this might have possibly looked like. And uh, one possibility is that when the church announced when the distribution would take place, would happen, they did it in Aramaic, and the Greek speakers didn't quite understand, and maybe they showed up at the wrong time and they were overlooked. We don't really know, but there was something there about the language difference that was producing some potential discord. And as you know, language is a very important component of culture. It can help in dividing peoples if we don't watch out. And so the solution of the apostles is not that they set aside their preaching and teaching to take care of this matter of uh, meeting the needs of the Hellenistic widows. Instead, it was a matter of, let's appoint seven godly men who can take care of this so that we can continue to vote ourselves to the Word of God and to prayer. And so the solution is to pick these seven men from amongst you, from your community, to establish and to help out with this specific problem. And there are three kinds of characteristics of these individuals that show up in the text. First of all, they're supposed to be of good repute in verse 3. They're also supposed to be full of the Holy Spirit and also full of wisdom. That's who you're supposed to select. Someone who is well testified to, has a good reputation. It's not somebody whose reputation has been tarnished by some bad deeds in their life or whatever. Also spiritually minded connected with God, not worldly, not focused on, the just, uh, on just the physical, but they are focused on the spiritual, and that's their mindset. And then finally, they're supposed to be men who are full of wisdom, not foolish or prone to bad decision-making. Instead, they are known as wise men. And they select seven of them, and they will be appointed to serve in this capacity. That's who the apostles say should take care of this problem. And we think this kind of becomes the beginning of the, the concept of a deacon or a, a, an appointed 
um, uh, servant of the church. One thing I think is worth pointing out here, brothers and sisters, is that they're selected by the congregation. You all select these folks. The elders come in at the end, or excuse me, the apostles come in at the end, and they lay their hands on them. But the multitude is the ones who nominate and, and accept these folks. And we don't know exactly what the actual process was. Uh, did they hold a vote? Um, Democracy was well known in the ancient world. I mean, the Greeks created it. They invented it. And everybody knew about it, right? So maybe that was it. Democracy was still functioning on some local level in many different cities, even though they functioned within an empire. On the local level, there were a lot of elections that took place. People were familiar with that concept. Was it just nomination? Was it acclamation where they just started shouting guys' names and they got selected? I don't know. We don't, we're not told what the deacon selection process looked like there. But in some way, the multitude was involved, and they brought these men before the elders, excuse me, I keep saying that, the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them in verse 6. And that's why I think, brothers and sisters, it's very wise for every deacon selection process to certainly involve the congregation in that. And I was glad to see on your ballots over here uh, the church is being asked to give an affirmation of these individuals. That's very important because they are going to be working and serving amongst you, and the church needs to have confidence in them as, as the elders also have con- um, confidence in these men. And so also we see an ordination that takes place. Um, sometimes in our fellowship we've used the word installation of deacons. Um, and I have an elder friend of mine that loves to, to, to quote about, well, I thought you just installed mufflers, right? That was something you install, you install a muffler. And uh, he, so he didn't like that phrase. But I think I understand what everybody means. You're, you're putting someone in place a biblical way of describing this might be the idea of ordination or laying on of hands. This is the common biblical thing that's done when you set someone aside for a specific ministry. We see that's done in Acts chapter 13, verse 3. Paul and Barnabas and Saul are commissioned as missionaries through the laying on of hands. In Acts chapter 14, verse 23, elders are appointed through the laying on of hands. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14, elders had laid hands on Timothy at the beginning of his ministry. And in chapter 5 of 1 Timothy, he is told to don't lay hands on anyone hastily. And my interpretation of that is that you, you think about it, you're careful, you don't do it too quickly, you, you take serious reflection to place. In, in place before you actually lay hands in and in, install there I said it or ordain someone as uh, a leader in the church and so there is this solemn moment when uh, the apostles lay their hands on these men and in our context where we're not living in an apostolic context the elders now are in that place of the shepherds and they will lay their hands on folks and commission them to ministry and I know that every ministry that I've ever gone to, each church that I've gone to, I've asked the elders to lay their hands on me and ordain me in that sense in the congregation because I believe that they are commissioning me to a specific ministry in that church and I believe it's a good thing and a biblical thing to do as well with regard to deacons. And so this first passage about deacons leaves us with a lot of questions. We wonder how they selected these men, how long did they serve? We talked about in the Bible class, you have to just have seven. What was so special about the number seven? And there were some in church history that thought that's the only number of deacons you can have. But most have said, no, that was just incidental. 
Did they do other things besides serve on tables? Remember, this is at a time where the church doesn't own any property. A lot of what deacons end up doing is things related to the physical property of congregations. But it will be a while before churches actually have property. So what exactly did those deacons do? We don't have that information. But the passage does make some things very clear. It tells us that these special servants minister in the body by relieving the apostles of more mundane duties, such as serving tables. We learn that not just anybody is selected to do this. They are all to be men of character and spiritual-minded and dedicated. In fact, don't miss the point that one of these early deacons in the next chapter preaches an amazing sermon and ends up being the first martyr of the Christian church. His name is Stephen. And so these men are dedicated, wise, spiritual members of the body who can take care of these mundane things, who come alongside the apostles to take care of things so the apostles are relieved. And in our context, the deacons are called to help the elders and relieve some of that pressure of ministry so that they can focus on the work of shepherding. And so this first great passage happens early in the life of the church. A lot of the details are not worked out quite yet, but there is this concept of, of servants, special servants, coming alongside the apostles to help in the ministry of the church. The second passage we're looking at this morning is in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And again, you should be there with your other marker. And so turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Written approximately 30 years after the events of Acts chapter 6, the church is becoming a little more established. The Apostle Paul from the pastoral from First and Second Timothy, it's pretty clear that he knows his time on this earth is coming to a close. And he's wanting to establish some things, some good organization for the church at the time when he's gone. And he instructs this young preacher, Timothy, in many different things in this short letter that he wrote to Timothy. And in chapter 3, he focuses on church leadership. He begins verses 1 through 7 by describing the work of or the the character of an overseer, but then moves directly in verse 8 into the office of deacon. And so I'll read this text this morning and say a few words about it. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Again, this is a a significant and the most significant section in the New Testament that describes what a deacon is supposed to be like. We know from Acts chapter 20 that there were elders at Ephesus when Paul made his journey back to Judea. And by the way, 1 Timothy, uh, Timothy is in Ephesus when Paul writes him this letter. We know from Acts 20 that there were elders in Ephesus when Paul made his way back to Judea around the year 55 AD, about five or six years before Paul wrote this letter. But we don't hear anything again until Philippians chapter 1 about deacons. 
which was written around 61 AD, as I read earlier. And it could be that the formalized role of deacon was something that had developed in that 30-year period. It went from this kind of thing that started in Acts 6, and it didn't have a lot of um, guidelines for it or whatever, but it developed until finally in this first letter of Timothy, um, it has some more details, very clear details about what a deacon is supposed to be like. And what's interesting here is that in 1 Timothy that there's no specific need that's mentioned. Paul does not say why deacons are needed, but assumes that they're needed and being used in the church. Instead, his purpose is to provide guidance as to who should serve in that role. And I think it's critical to understand that the qualifications to be a deacon, it's all about character and spiritual maturity and reputation in the community. Verse 10 says, first, let them be tested, and if there's nothing against them, let them serve. And the test looks like this. Take a look at them in comparison to these qualities that the Apostle Paul says should be present in his life. And so you're familiar with these. They're supposed to be a man of unquestioned character, similar to that of the elders. In fact, the word that introduces verse 8 is likewise. He just got done talking about elders. He says likewise now. He starts to describe the deacons. They are to be men who are worthy of respect and sincere. They're not known for being drunkards or alcohol consumption, not involved in dishonest gain, questionable business deals. They're not someone who is known for get-rich-quick operations and gambling. That's not the kind of person that you want counting the money at the church. All right, You want someone who's known for being solid and faithful and someone who is worthy of great respect. Also, there is a sense that they are supposed to hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. If someone were to ask them, what's the Christian faith all about? A deacon is going to be able to say, well, this is what the Christian faith is about. That's what it means to hold to it and also to be someone who is solid in their faith. Also, there is focus on the family, no pun intended there, that's given in this description of what a deacon is supposed to look like. Interesting qualifications. Their wives are to look a certain way. I've always kind of wondered, why does Paul say, here's what the wives of a deacon is supposed to look like, but he doesn't say anything about the wives of an elder? I don't know the answer to that, but it is perhaps part of what the deacons are doing will involve some teamwork with their wife, and that often happens in the church, and I think that's actually a very good thing. A a deacon's wife often is right there with her husband, helping out with some of those things. But if she's not respectable, if she's a gossip, if she doesn't have a good reputation, that could hinder the ministry of that deacon. And so perhaps that's why Paul makes a mention about the character of their wives. There's also this important statement about marriage faithfulness. This one phrase, the husband of one wife, has been debated over and over in in many different um, contexts. And what exactly does this mean? The phrase is also referred to um, with regard to an overseer's qualification. One time I read a, a, a scholarly paper that listed eight different interpretations of what that phrase, the husband of one wife, means. Okay? Now, some of them are kind of, you could easily weed them out as not really valid, but it it goes to the point that this has been one of the focal points of this. Does it mean 
that widowers who remarry aren't eligible to be deacons? Does it mean you must be married? What about single people? Does it mean divorce for any reason is a disqualifier? Or, or does it just rule out unscriptural divorcees from serving as a deacon? There are many questions, and it's not my job here today to try to answer all of those. Instead, I think what the focus should be is on what is crystal clear from this passage. The crystal clear teaching is that when you look at deacons, you must evaluate his marriage. It is a great indicator of character, commitment, and trustworthiness and wisdom if a man has attended to his marriage in a faithful way. And if not, then he does not need to be a deacon. So that marriage needs to be strong and be solid. That's something you look at when you're appointing deacons. Also, the children of his household are to be managed well. That's in the second part of verse 12, managing their children and their households well. This is often the case that we men, we get judged by how our, our house is, our kids We often, people say something about me based on my kids, and it does say something about a man, the way his kids are turning out. That doesn't mean that free will is still not there. I mean, obviously, kids do what they want to do a lot of times, but the general picture of a man's children should be that they're well-managed, and that's an indicator of someone who should be appointed as a deacon. There's a lot of heavy stuff here in this section, but it's a great section to dwell on, and I've seen in my um, ministry over the years that there's a tendency to either be, uh, to, to have extremes when it comes to these qualifications. You either hold these qualifications so tight and so strictly that no man can ever meet up to it, and so you never have deacons in your church. Or you just view them as kind of, oh yeah, nice suggestions, and then you may reap what you've sown there with a diaconate or a group of deacons who, who are not faithfully going to serve. And so may God give everyone wisdom as you discern that proper balance in holding to these qualifications, but not being so strict about them that no one is ever able to serve. That's one of the extremes we should need, we should avoid. And this is true also for elder selection process. God's intent is that his church is led well. And a strong and faithful and spiritual eldership can work well if it has a strong and dedicated group of special servants working with them in the ministry. And these men are called deacons. I will be praying for you as you move through this season of selecting special servants of the church and adding to the ones you already have and and perhaps rebooting during this time of coming out of this pandemic. This is what we're all hoping for and longing for. And I think it'll be great if the Eugene Church has a a strong, reinvigorated deaconship to help the elders move forward as you uh, come out of this pandemic. I want to say this. If you are a man who is being considered for this work during this season, or if you are a current serving deacon here at the Eugene Church, I have two words for you directly that I want to speak. Notice the very ending of what Paul says here in terms of the qualifications. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. There is no higher calling than to serve God's church in a very special way. And serving as a deacon is a special work of service. And so the time and the energy, the emotional energy that it takes to serve in this way, it's totally worth it, brothers. 
It's what the church needs for men to step up and lead the body of Christ to help lift the burden with the elders and carry the ministry forward. It is totally worth it. The blood, the sweat, the toil, the nights that you don't sleep very well because this thing's happening or that you got in a conflict with somebody in the church because they think you should do your ministry this way or that way and all of that struggle that everybody involved in ministry experiences, it's totally worth it. And I encourage you to not shrink back from that obligation to serve the church if it's calling you to serve as a deacon. God will bless you and He will give you all the strength that you need to serve in that capacity. I totally believe that. If you will lean on Him and trust in Him, He will give you all the strength that you need. And so, remember, that calling is great. And you will receive good standing. And also, you will receive great confidence in the faith. I have seen men come in as deacons. They were very fresh, maybe in their early 30s, and, and they're not sure what they're doing. And when I look at them a few years later with the, the service that they're doing, they have confidence in their service, confidence in their leadership, and they are the kind of men that down the road in, in years to come will be able to step naturally into that role of a shepherd. And God will bless you if you will step up and lead in that way with prayer, with spiritual strength. And watch out for the devil's attacks. He loves to discourage, and don't let him do it. May God bless you. May God richly bless this church. And I pray that today, as we've looked through his word, there's something here that's been a good spark to your life as a servant of God. May we close in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we love you and thank you for your church. We thank you for the church that your son Jesus established by his blood. He purchased a people for you with his blood. And He is the head of this church, of every church, the whole body of Christ worldwide, the universal church, and also the, the Eugene Church of Christ. And I'm thankful, Lord, that you are calling special servants to serve in this body, to serve alongside the elders, to help with the work that Calvin is doing in the preaching, in the, in the teaching, in the service, the pastoral work. And I pray that you will guide the, the, the right men into this deacon group that you want here, and that they will be alive and well and serving, loving each other, getting along, encouraging one another, becoming a brotherhood of deacons. And may the church just be encouraged by their example and want to get involved in serving as well. Bless this congregation. Make it everything you want it to be. To storm the gates of hell, to help people in this community who are lost in darkness find light. To be brought from darkness into light. To have new life and new hope in your Son. It's in Christ's holy name that I pray. Amen.